probably, uh, I don't know, 15, maybe 16. I was out in a driveway with a buddy of mine, and we're just shooting hoops, right? We're just shooting baskets. And it's just kind of the conversation turned to our futures. He was telling me he was going to graduate from Bellarmine. And then that summer, he actually had a, his first job as a teller at the Wells Fargo right across the street here. And yeah, it was kind of cool. And he was just uh, telling me how he was going to go on to study finance. I had every reason to believe this guy was going to be successful. He was sharp, well-educated. I just thought, yeah, I, I'm sure that's what you're going to do. And then we changed places. And so I go out and I'm shooting. And he, just, he asked me, he goes, well, what about you? What are your plans for the future? For the future? I said, well, I want to play in the NBA. <laughs> you doubt my basketball <laughs> prowess? Oh, that's a dagger. No. <laughs> well, that was kind of his response. Um, he goes, <laughs> uh, that's never going to happen. And I'm like, I was kind of shocked, right? Uh, I was like, well, um, and he said, you got a couple strikes against you. He says, you're not 6'9". I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's true. And he says, you don't have a 40-inch vertical. I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's true too. And then he started sharing with me all the statistical impossibilities of me ever making it to the NBA. Thank you so much. He goes, if there were 10,000 basketball players in a stadium, one would make it the NBA. He goes, there's only 400 guys in the NBA. He said, you would have a greater chance of getting struck by lightning than getting... <laughs> Like, way to crush a guy's dreams, right? I had, you know, I had basketball players on my wall. Since I was a little kid, I'd kind of dreamt about playing in the NBA. And, and, uh, and that day, I decided I'd be a pastor. I just decided I'd settle for, no. But you could just sense all that optimism and excitement just getting sucked right out of me. I'd met my first cynic. Cynicism uh, is prevalent in our culture. It shows up all over. I think about this valley. You know, we hear of people coming to the valley and they're, you know, they're going to make it big, right? You know, they, they have this killer app that they, they know is just going to be amazing. Or they have a startup that is just going to be a huge disruptor in the industry. Or they plan on making their first million before they're 30. And you can almost hear the collective Silicon Valley veterans, you know, just kind of listening and rolling their eyes and go, yeah, uh, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Same thing happens in New York. You know, people get off the train and they're like, oh, we're going to make it on Broadway. I'm going to be a Wall Street guy or something like that. Or L.A., right? I'm going to be a film actor. And, it, and they're filled as they get off the bus just with all this excitement and joy, enthusiasm. And it's almost like, it's almost like the locals just feel like it's their civic responsibility to kind of squeeze all that cockeyed optimism right out of them. Yeah, like, yeah, that's probably never going to happen. That kind of cynicism, though, is everywhere in our culture, right? I mean, we're cynical of our political leaders. We're cynical of our healthcare experts. We're cynical of our corporate leaders. We're even cynical of marriage. That kind of cynicism is all over. And you hear the little adage, you can do it. Yes, you can. There's that little cynical voice in us that goes, probably not, probably not. Cynicism, as I kind of studied it, the classic definition is this. Cynicism is assuming everyone else is acting out of pure self-interest, even if they claim a higher motive. Pure self-interest. But I think, actually, I think it's a little deeper than that. I think it's a general distrust in the human species, and it's pervasive in our culture. It's basically a pessimism around people. Megan Garber wrote a recent article in The Atlantic, and she says this, cynicism is among other things, a habit of disordered vision. It looks at friends and sees foes. It looks at truth and sees deceit. 
cynicism at scale makes democracy's most basic demands, seeing one another as we are, impossible. And then she adds this, and America at the moment is saturated with it. The great theologian, Stephen Colbert, <laughs> he says this, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it's the farthest thing from it because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. You know, when you meet a cynic, they seem like they're really insightful, like they have great wisdom of something. But what they're suggesting is that it's really just kind of a, a protective mask that people wear so they won't be disappointed or experience hurt. I think at its core, it's a lack of seeing potential and it's a lack of seeing goodness, specifically the goodness of God. And what's worse, I think, is I think cynicism has worked its way into the church. It's creeped its way slowly into the church. I mean, you hear of, of somebody who says, you know, had a great miraculous thing that happened. God showed up, a great answer to prayer. And that little cynical voice can kind of chip away and go, yeah, that was probably just going to happen anyway. As I studied this subject, um, I'm indebted to uh, Pastor John Tyson from New York. And a lot of my thoughts have been shaped by his, by his writing. And he has this to say about cynicism. When this kind of cynicism gets into the church, we lose our antibodies of hope. We stop being carriers of good news and we begin to agree with the world that there really is no good news. That kind of cynicism can erode and corrupt the joy that I believe God has intended for us to experience. And even more importantly, it takes us off mission of being a people who are characterized by bringing and carrying good news. We start to be a people who are more shaped by the 24-hour news cycle of despair and hopelessness. And we start to believe that this is all there is. So I'm going to offer this maybe as a simple definition of cynicism. Cynicism is a disordered vision resulting in a mistrust specifically in the goodness of God and others. It's a disordered vision resulting in a mistrust in the goodness of God. That cynicism can get in and it can just erode any sense of joy that we would have. And the question for us today is how can we as followers of Christ, as people looking to, to, to follow Jesus, how can we avoid being swept up by a culture of cynicism? Well, do you know who I think are probably the least cynical people on the planet? Children. And that's probably why Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be like a child. You must approach it that kind of way. Children, I think children have this wonderful sense of expectancy and wonder. They're able to delight in good. They're able to celebrate. And this is what I want to offer for you today. I believe that celebration silences Cynicism. Celebration is something that we can do to, to, to silence those cynical voices in our lives. You see, cynicism gets in and it, it corrupts our sense of joy, our, our trust in God and his goodness. But celebration is really a defiant act against the voices of cynicism in our culture. If you're joining us online, I just want to say welcome. My name is Mark. It's good to, good to have you with us. My wife is the host on there, so if you want to say hi to her in the chat, that would be great. But I just want to invite us just to take a second. Before we launch into this subject, let's just pray together. 
Um, I need it as much as maybe some of you may need this. And I've, I've learned a lot. And I just want to invite God through his Holy Spirit to kind of speak to us. So let's pray. Father, we come to this subject aware of how prevalent cynicism is in our culture. God, I would pray for us that we would come like children. Father, not childish, but childlike. And that by your truth and by your grace, God, would you shape us to be the people who are carriers of good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we first launched this series, Jay used a John Ortberg quote that basically said, God is the happiest being in the universe. I don't know if you thought much about that, but the, the idea that God is the most joyful being in the universe. I mean, clearly he has moments where there's grief and there's sorrow, maybe even anger, but they're just momentary responses to a fallen world. That God's basic default posture is one of joy and celebration. You guys, God is in a good mood. He is joyful. And here's the thing, is as his people, he invites us to be carriers of that same kind of joy. And this idea of celebration seems to be threaded over and over throughout Scripture. If you were to pick up and, and look at the very first chapters of the Bible in Genesis, we get to see this beautiful poetic description of how the world came into being. The opening sentences of Genesis don't read so much like a scientific explanation uh, telling us about the origins of the universe, but they're more these kind of artful expressions that as each element artfully came into existence, God makes this pronouncement. And what does he say? Everything that was created, he goes, it is good. Everybody say that. It is good. That's when he saw that, he expresses that. And what's interesting, that there's a commentary, something we don't normally think of uh, that is accompanying the creation of the whole world. It's a celebration. Look what it says in Job 38. God is speaking to Job in somewhat a uncharacteristically sarcastic voice. Listen to what he says. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? Then listen to this. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So the image is as creation is being shaped, what's going on? There's this beautiful celebration of morning stars singing and angels shouting for joy. And this isn't just some kind of little, you know, cerebral golf clap, right? It's like a full-on celebration. You got singing. and it's like, a, it's like a John Williams film score, you know, accompanied by this great Steph Curry game-winning NBA championship shot. And the place just erupts. That, I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about when God created the earth. That's the kind of celebration that was taking place. It gives me chills. And I think when God established uh, uh, his, his people, this idea of celebration, he wove into the rhythms of their life and in their practices. Even their worship giving was designed to be a celebration. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy. Speaking of their generosity and their ability to tithe and give back to God, it says this. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. And eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. 
Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. Now, when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name to be honored, it might be too far for you to bring this tithe. If so, you can sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds, put the money in a pouch, and go to the place the Lord your God has chosen. When you arrive there, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, and other alcoholic drink. Then feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and celebrate with your household. Do you get a feel of what's going on here? The worship practices of God's people were meant to embody a celebration. That he takes that even farther. He wants to feast with them. And he has a provision in there. He says, if it's too far for you to go, he suggests you can sell your possessions, turn it into Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever it is. Something, whatever makes, you know, uh, you know, something you can trade with. And then do everything that bring, makes a good party, right? Alcohol and food. Can I get an amen for that? <laughs> That's the essence of the celebration. It's a vision for bourbon and barbecue. God wants our worship expressions to be embodied with celebration. I don't know if you ever wondered, like, when you come to a Westgate service and we say we're going to receive an offering, that people clap and cheer. I believe that's because it's a reminder of God's goodness and his provision. So it's a joy for us to be able to express our delight in God by giving back to him. I think the cynical voice that, pe- that can be echoed in an experience like that is that cynics tend to think, well, that's just the church. They're just out for my money. But those of us who follow God know that he's designed for us to give back to him as a joyful expression, a joyful celebration of his goodness and his provision. And what happens is God establishes his covenant relationship with his people is these rhythms of celebration, they occur throughout the entire year for his people. There's, uh, if you've probably heard of the Passover, the Passover was a yearly celebration that reminded people of God's goodness in delivering them from Egypt. There was another festival called the Festival of Weeks, and it was a reminder of God's goodness in providing abundance for them. Another festival was the Festival of Tabernacles, which is where they would camp for seven days. And it was a reminder of God's goodness by being present with them. And these celebrations, they had food, they had alcohol. It was, it was like Coachella, Coachella and outside lands. You know what I'm saying? They flew in Lady Gaga and Drake. It was a huge celebration. Okay, maybe not that part of it. Even their Sabbath was meant to be a rhythm of celebration. God's people to not just pause their work but to remember and to celebrate God's goodness. Look at what it says in Isaiah 58. Speaking of the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interest on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. Speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Do you see the key words there? Enjoy and delight. God actually condones the celebration with joy. What they become They become subversive acts of celebration that kick against the culture, the culture in that day and the culture of our day, which says, don't rest, don't stop, be more productive, be more more goal-oriented. And God would only curse their celebrations based off of two things, if they neglected the poor or if they didn't make his goodness a central part of that celebration. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, the idea of celebration intensifies even more so. You see, the enemy's chief ploy for you and I, his subversive act, is to get us to question the goodness of God. 
Scripture says that Satan is the father of lies, and he tries to get people to doubt God's provision and God's goodness. It happened in the garden, and it continues to happen throughout all the course of history. But God, in this kind of sweeping, subversive movement, he sends Christ into the world to usher in a sense of his celebration through the redemption of all creation. And if you think about what happened when Christ shows up on the scene, when Jesus shows up, there's a huge celebration. What does it say? Um, as the angels sing to the, uh, to the shepherds, they bring good, good tidings of great joy. Mary, when she talks to Elizabeth and she shares about the baby that she's carrying, Jesus, it, the scripture says that Elizabeth, the baby inside Elizabeth leaps for joy. Now, I don't know how you leap inside a womb. That's, I can't even imagine that. But there was this response of receiving Jesus with a great sense of joy. And as Jesus launches his ministry, I want you to see something, how he inaugurates a whole season of celebration. Jesus shows up at his hometown in Nazareth. And look what scripture says. When he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah as it was handed to him. Now get this picture. Here's Jesus, hometown boy, shows up. Everybody kind of knows him, knows of him. And he stands up and the scriptures just handed to him. Look what he reads. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Whew, all the eyes go to him like, ooh, this is interesting. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is literally the year of Jubilee. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, today is the day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was pronouncing a whole season of celebration, not just a one-day Sabbath, or a weekly celebration, or even a yearly one. The phrase year of Jubilee in the ancient language, it literally means an indefinite period of time. Jesus was inaugurating the redemption of all creation beginning at that moment and how it should be accompanied with celebration. And if you know the story, people didn't take too kindly to his message, which reminds us that we, if we're going to kick against cynicism in our culture, it kind of is something we need to fight for. We need to contend with it. They decided they weren't going to look for Jesus so they could throw him off a cliff. Celebration in a world of cynics is something we must continue to fight for. And as Jesus journeyed throughout his mission and his, his years of ministry, um, we get to see this kind of celebratory theme go over and over. There's a famous uh, section in Luke uh, 15. Jesus tells a trilogy of stories. We all love our trilogies of movies. He tells a trilogy of stories. And in these three stories, we see something. He starts off by telling about a shepherd who has 100 sheep. And he leaves the 99, completely not a wise move. And he hunts down and finds the one missing sheep. And then there's 10 coins for a woman. She, she loses one of the coins. She's sweeping the house. She's looking all over for it. And when she finds it, she has this moment of celebration. And this is what I think Jesus is speaking into. He says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. We don't usually see that, but when somebody surrenders their life to Christ, heaven erupts in a celebration. It's this redemptive act that, that all of creation just celebrates because of God's huge work. And then 
he tells the third story, which is the prodigal son story. I know a lot of people are familiar with the prodigal son story. I kind of tend to think of it as the prodigal God story. Because we see the unreasonable, undignified action of the father running to embrace the son. And in this narrative, we get to encounter something unique because we get to see what the cynic is. That's the older brother. And it's here that we see what really cynicism can do to our spiritual lives. The older brother in this story is, is ticked off because there's celebration for this returning son. And the one who is responsible, him, uh, there was no party thrown for him. But the father replies to him, everything I have is yours. The older brother somehow failed to realize what was the culture of the house that he lived in. His cynicism shut him out from a culture of celebration. And it reminds us, kind of like Stephen Colbert did, that cynicism is this self-imposed blindness. It's a failure to see a good God who provides. And the goodness of God's goodness available to us in an ongoing way. A few years ago, I, uh, I came across a book called The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. Heath. And I, gave, I shared the book with a handful of staff. I, I read it a handful of times. It had an interesting idea to it. That is, moments of celebration will be met by cynics and some kind of resistance. That in order to go against um, that idea of celebration, we have to, what the, what the author says, beware of the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Have you ever come across the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness? I have. I mean, it's like... I don't want to celebrate. It's, it costs too much money. It's too much time. I'm going to look kind of silly doing it. It's really not that convenient. We need to, my friends, we need to kick against the soul. Get behind me, soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Can you say that with me? No. <laughs> that voice will erode our ability to enter into celebration. And that's why I think it's such a defiant act for us to celebrate. But celebration silences those cynical voices. It's interesting to me that this act of celebration actually has a neurobiological effect. Um, I came across some writings by Jonathan Grant, who's a neurobiologist. I am not one. I don't play one on TV. But he has some interesting, wise things to say about what happens. I do know that our brains have a plasticity to them, that as we practice certain behaviors, it starts to inculcate more joy for us. So look at what it says. Look at what he says. Science has shown that while the majority of the brain's development stops during childhood, there is one location in the right orbital prefrontal cortex that has the ability to grow throughout your life. This has been called the joy center. When the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves and it releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And it's the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food, sexual impulses, terror, and rage. The point he's making is that these joy centers can be developed and strengthened over time as we practice them. And what it does is it overrides some of those more um, toxic emotions that we can experience. So how do we as a community reject the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness? How can we together practice strengthening our joy centers? I just want to offer for you just a couple suggestions, three or four ways that you might be able to practice this uh, defiant act of celebration. 
And the first thing I would say is start here. Start with just a simple celebration. A simple celebration can sound a little bit like stopping to smell the roses. I think it's a little bit more than that because it's connected to God's goodness for us. Come on, be honest with me. A great piece of pizza? How are we not rejoicing more over a great piece of pizza? That Poxy's Chicago-style pizza, I love that pizza. And, and as opposed to just eating it, savoring it, and tasting it, lunch is so close, is it not? As opposed to just doing that, it's reconnecting it to God's goodness, his provision, that somebody was able to creatively make that and we get to enjoy it. When I, uh, it was probably about 10 years ago, I was learning to surf. I was terrible at it. I was so bad at it. Um, and, but this buddy of mine was showing me how to surf. And so <clears throat> we would drive over the hill, go to Cowles, and uh, we'd get our surfboards, we'd put on our wetsuits, wax the surfboards up, and we'd wade our way into the water. And he would pause right before we got into the, to the, the waves, and he would just pray. He said, you know, thanks, God, for the, the cool water at our feet. Thanks for the warmth of the sunshine as it breaks through kind of the, the haze of the fog. Thanks for that smell of salt air. And Jesus' name, Amen. And then we would get pummeled by waves. That was not the fun part. But it was just such a, a beautiful way to simply pause. What are those like for you? What are those moments that bring great joy and delight to you? That you could just pause and simply just say, God, thank you. This is your provision for me. Simple celebrations. Those are made mostly of our need pleasures. But there's also something I would call a strategic celebration. Strategic celebration has a sense of intentionality around it. That's a reflective delight, looking back over some of the areas of our life. And this is what I think of the Sabbath. And I know in our culture, I know some of you work long hours. And I know it's really hard to have a, a weekly practice of Sabbath. Just an intentional period of time where you block off. And I would encourage you with this, as opposed to think like the ancient world where they'd have a 24-hour period of time that was a Sabbath. Can you get three or four hours where you just block it off and more than just experience something good, you remind yourself of God's care and provision in your life. I heard a local pastor who administered all over the, the country, uh, he shared something that's kind of stayed with me. And this is just his perception. But he said he believed that the idol of the South, the Southern states, he, as he ministered there, their idol was racism. He believed the idol of Southern California, as he experienced it, was image. People are really cautious about their image, that they worship that kind of an idea of protecting their image, trying to uh, perceive a, a, a unique image. He said for the Silicon Valley, as he ministered here, he thought the idol for our valley was productivity, accomplishment. There's something in the culture that we live in that just says, do not take a break. You're not allowed to take a break. But I would invite you, even if you could think of, think of a Sabbath as less science and more art. Are there a few hours even in a week where you can pause do all the things that bring you restoration, right? You know, bake chocolate chip pancakes, make love to your spouse, go on a great walk, have coffee with a friend, but more than just experience something good, take a moment to pause and reflect, how have you seen God's goodness over this last week? It's an intentional activity to remember and delight in God's goodness. Another one I'd suggest is redemptive celebrations. A redemptive celebration is something that you reflect back over, over your life. How has God shown up redemptively in your life? Think about perhaps the year, your first year of sobriety. I have a friend who's getting, got out of prison this last year celebrating being released from prison. What about the idea of, of um, you know, celebrating your baptism? 
The idea of, of celebrating when you first turned and surrendered your life to Jesus. Do you mark those moments? Do you have, well, you know, we have, we have celebrations over birthdays and graduations. Why not celebrate our spiritual birthdays? Have a birthday cake. Do, you know, make all the things that make a celebration. Because here's, here's what I'd submit to you. As we practice that, I think it will start to strengthen the joy center. And it will become more instinctual for us as a community. That our knee-jerk response is, well, let's celebrate God's goodness. Let's pray and thank God for his goodness. Let's thank God for his abundance. Let's thank God for his provision. I love how AA has those little sobriety coins. We've celebrated. People have uh, come here and said, oh, today is my 25th anniversary. We should have these same kind of spiritual markers that remind ourselves God has worked powerfully and redemptively in our lives. What might those be for you? And then finally, I would invite you to think about something called a courageous celebration. A courageous celebration is the kind of celebration that calls us maybe to act in a bold way, to step out in a way that may seem kind of silly or maybe even undignified. Those kind of God-sized moments that require us to take a courageous step of faith. A few years ago, I, uh, I heard a story by a pastor named uh, Tony Campolo. And he shares a story uh, about how he used to travel from the East Coast to Hawaii uh, to speak. And as you can imagine, you know, when you travel that distance, your internal clocks all get, you know, out of sync. And he was sharing how one time he was there, it was 3.30 in the morning, he's in Honolulu, and he can't sleep and he's hungry. And so he just gets out and walks the streets of Waikiki. And as he's walking, you know, looking for a place to eat, he finds this little greasy spoon diner. And so he kind of walks in, it's, it's a small little place, and he sees this kind of gruff cook standing there, you know, serving food, and he just orders, uh, I think he ordered like a donut and some coffee. And as he's sitting there, all of a sudden, bang, the door opens, and nine very boisterous, loud, gregarious prostitutes walk in. And he's this pastor, right? He's sitting there, and he's at the, he's at the bar, kind of the counter there, and there are, there, there's no much room, so they're all sitting in around him, and they're talking over the top of him. And he hears one of the, the ladies say, oh, well, tomorrow is my birthday, I'm going to be 39. And the other gal's kind of in a nasty tone. They're like, well, what do you think? What do you think we care? Like, we think we're going to throw you a birthday party or something? And she kind of backs down. She goes, no, I just didn't ever have a birthday party. I was just saying it was my birthday. So as the conversation went on, they finally just picked their stuffs up and wrapped it up for the night and left. And Tony's sitting there. And he says to the cook, hey, did, do these ladies come in here all the time? And the cook goes, oh, yeah, they're regulars. And he goes, well, that one, Agnes, yeah, 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 uh, is she a regular? Oh, she's with him every time. He goes, huh. He gets this idea and he goes, well, what would you think if we threw a birthday party? And the cook kind of cracks this little smile. He goes, yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. And so when he goes, Tony says, well, I'll get a cake and some decorations. And, and the cook goes, no, no, I'll bake the cake. Okay, okay. So next night, 3.30 in the morning. He shows up and he decorates this place completely. He's got paper, you know, mache stuff and happy birthday signs. Word got out and the place is totally packed. And so here's this little diner. Cook bakes the cake. In walk the ladies. Nine or 3.30 in the morning. Door flings open and the entire place busts out. Happy birthday. And Agnes just has this complete look of shock on her face. Just like, she just can't take it in. And so Tony, in this awkward moment, goes, well, let's sing happy birthday. So they all sing happy birthday to her, happy birthday to her and the, the cook brings out this cake. And 
her eyes just are like just so mystified that somebody would do this for her. And so the cook goes, well, now you cut up the cake and, you know, give it to everybody. She goes, well, can I take this cake to my mom and show her? And, and he goes, yeah, I, I guess. So like it's the holy grail, right? She's carrying this cake down the street. And here's Tony, eight prostitutes full of people in this little cafe and in this diner. And he does what any pastor would do. Let's pray. <laughs> so he leads him in this prayer, thanking God for Agnes's life praying for her well-being and her health, praying for her spiritual life. And he says, in Jesus' name, amen. And the cook looks at him and says, hey, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. What church do you belong to? Tony says, I belong to a church that would throw a birthday party for a prostitute at 3.30 in the morning. And he goes, no, you don't. Because if you did, I'd want to join that church. You guys, I think those kind of courageous celebrations speak so powerfully to a world that is longing to experience real joy and goodness and provision. And we can be carriers of that kind of goodness if we will step out courageously. The world is mystified that that kind of celebration would represent the goodness of God. But I think they feel it deep in their bones. They need that kind of expression. They need that kind of celebration. It's unreasonable. It's extravagant. But I believe it reflects the abundance of our God. I'll confess to you, I'm not particularly good at pausing to celebrate like this. I mean, I quite frank, free, uh, frequently am lazy. I succumb to the voice of reasonableness. It just is inconvenient. It takes too much time. I mean, it's for you extroverts in the room, not for us kind of introverted people, those non-sevens on the Enneagram. But I believe that as we move to do this more and more, I believe God will use it to strengthen the joy centers in your life and in my life. And it will increase our antibodies of hope, that this is the very thing our world longs to see. And we can be carriers of that kind of goodness if we'll step out in bold ways. And I believe the more we do these kind of celebrations, they will just become knee-jerk, automatic responses for us. But we need to grow, I think, in being able to silence the cynicism in our culture through our celebration. I love the, the definition uh, Jay used on, when we talked about joy at the very first Joy is not a passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. God's goodness warrants our celebration. And our celebration really can silence the cynicism that we face in our world. I want to give you just a few minutes just to quiet yourself before the Lord. And just close your eyes, bow your heads. And just invite the Spirit of God to show up as he may in your life. And I would just offer just a couple questions for you to kind of mull over and ask the Spirit. Where perhaps is cynicism showing up in your life? Where is cynicism showing? Is it directed towards a specific person? Is it an attitude towards some kind of institution? Where is that distrust Where's that self-imposed blindness? And then as God brings it to mind, just confess that to him.
Conversely, where have you experienced God's goodness recently? Has it been eating a great piece of pizza? Has it been a great conversation with a friend? Maybe some kind word was offered to you. And it's just a, just a reminder of God's attentive care in your lives. Where have you experienced his goodness and how can you give thanks? And then finally, where might you practice celebrations in your life? Simple celebrations? Do you need to have some strategic celebrations where you intentionally mark off some time to recall God's goodness? Redemptive celebrations. Are you open at all to celebrating in courageous ways where you might actually look a little silly? but for the sake of God's kingdom and his goodness, you're willing to step out in faith. Father, I thank you for the work you're doing to me uh, because I know it's not my knee-jerk response. I too often succumb to the voice of reasonableness have so many excuses while I just need to move on. To, I need to be more productive, need to accomplish more things. I don't want to pause. I pray for us as a corporate body. God, would you strengthen our joy centers? May we be characterized, even at Westgate, as a people who are quick to celebrate, who are quick to remember how good you are, how attentive you are, how reckless you are in loving us. And Father, I pray that it would silence those cynical voices that tend to swallow us up personally. We pray these things in Jesus' name.